In this episode, we speak with John Korngold, Global Head of Blackstone Growth, also known as BXG, and Global Co-Head of Technology Investing. We chat about the macro growth equity picture, BXG's focus areas, and its key developments over the last two years. I've met hundreds of private equity and growth equity investors over the past two decades, and John is someone truly unique, not just because of his professional accomplishments, which are many, but because of his insights, thoughtfulness, and humility. Blackstone Growth is Blackstone's dedicated growth equity investing platform. It is backed by the scale, operating expertise, and global reach of the world's largest alternative asset manager. Blackstone has $975 billion in assets under management and includes investment vehicles focused on private equity, real estate, public debt and equity, infrastructure, life sciences, growth equity, opportunistic, non-investment grade credit, real assets, and secondary funds, all on a global basis. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you liked the episode, click the subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Um, so interesting, when we were speaking, uh, I think a, a two, three weeks ago, you talked a little bit about the macro picture, and you had some very interesting insights, some related to the aftermath of some of the crossover funds and their activities and how that impacted the overall growth equity space. For our audience, would love to replay that and hear your thoughts again. Sure, happy to do that. So the, the crossover funds, I mean, they're incredibly smart investors, right? And as you've seen over the last several years, they've really expanded the aperture of the areas of growth that they were focused on. And I've heard some statistics that as much as 60% of late stage growth equity was largely accounted for by some of the largest crossover funds. And what's since happened, I think, post-correction is they've moved largely to the earlier stage of growth, more like the series A and B, and they've moved to the public markets to take advantage of a lot of the great dislocation that's there right now in the public markets. Because arguably, the public market has more naturally and quickly reset, and hence there's more actionable things today. And so they've moved into the barbell of the really early stage and to the public. That's created an interesting backdrop for traditional late stage growth equity investors like us at BXG, insofar as that structurally, there's a lot of capital now being pulled down in that market, where the IPO market is largely shut other than maybe episodically being open to a very limited set of names. The SPACs, for all intents and purposes, are gone. You had the crossover funds that were providing this almost artificial scaffolding on valuation in the market for a while. And now that that structurally 50 or 60% of capital has now moved elsewhere, that's brought it down. And then you have many of the traditional growth and venture funds that had the 12 years of a bull market to build up these very, very big portfolios that now naturally present their own distractions. And so while they're nursing the wounds across these sprawling portfolios, that's led to a structural reduction in the amount of late stage capital that's available to support these companies. You have valuations that are off by you know, 30 or 40%, but you still have companies that are no less ambitious in terms of what they want to do over time. And so it's an interesting backdrop. Just in the last few months alone, it's gotten decidedly better than it was you know, six months ago. Now, I could see a lot of our audience members being particularly interested in your insights because you probably have, from where you sit, you see a lot 
and you probably discussing a lot with your team members, okay, what's our next move? Where do we focus? And so I can imagine certain firms maybe are in a little bit of a pause state, more deliberate about their next steps. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about how the next few months play out for you? Sure. So I feel good that the strategy we employed largely through the bull market is one that's consistent with what we are trying to do across a dislocated environment. When we built this business originally several years ago, it wasn't with the idea that the world needed another bull market investor. We said, if you structurally had a blank sheet of paper, could you put yourself in a position to allow you to invest more consistently throughout cycles as opposed to invest too much at the peak, find yourself distracted with a large portfolio, and then you end up missing kind of the trough of the market? And so our goal always was from the beginning is to marry a huge level of operational infrastructure to a very, very curated portfolio so that we never were in a position to choose among children in terms of triaging problems in the portfolio, but importantly, to have the sufficient bandwidth to take advantage of the dislocations as they now present themselves, largely on the back of that structural reduction in capital I mentioned earlier. So what we did in the initial stages of BXG are the exact same things we're going to continue which is a general focus on profitable businesses. That's the majority of our portfolio that are scaled, right? So our typical investments north of $200 million. It's flexible, it can be lower, but it can be much higher, where we're typically the main, if not only source of outside institutional growth equity capital, alongside these entrepreneurs, largely in the domestic market of the US and the continent of Europe, right? Now it's a global mandate, but a huge portion of our exposures are in those more developed markets which we thought from a geopolitical perspective was the best risk reward balance that we can find in growth. So I think that's where we're continuing to resource ourselves. And importantly, beyond just tech, if you recall, we've got a lot in places like consumer companies like Spanx and Supergoop and, and Oatly and Bumble. We have defensive healthcare companies, we have financial services companies. And of course, like all growth investors, we also have some tech companies, but it's definitely not the majority of our exposure. And I think that's important. I also think a general focus on profitability right now is important because you don't know when and how your companies are going to be able to raise and access the capital markets at valuations that are sensible. I think there's very little appetite left in the public markets to fund cash hemorrhaging unicorns with no direct pathway to being profitable. And I think that's driving a level of discipline that I think maybe had been missing for a while in this bull market. Hey, you mentioned the sectors you're involved in, and I'm curious like, if there's one that you're maybe more heavily focused on than the other? Is it opportunistic now to be looking at sectors that are more in line with the valuations that you find very attractive? Or is it simply each case warrants its own evaluation and you're somewhat sector agnostic? Yeah, we're definitely specialists. So we're not generalists, but we do focus on those four major sectors I pointed to. And what we're seeing is, is really ample opportunity across all four right now. I think driven in part by a few dynamics. I think the first is different than the great financial crisis, where a lot of the pain was isolated to the real estate and financial services industries. I think the potential magnitude of this looming recession that people are naturally worried about is much more widespread across the economy and global economy for that matter. And I think that has sufficiently scared entrepreneurs into saying maybe there is merit to being aligned with a super tanker like Blackstone to navigate these choppy waters rather than go it alone in my small boat. And they can still keep the vast majority of the upside because more often than not, we're minority investors alongside these entrepreneurs. 
but it maybe gives them a better chance to navigate the storm. It maybe gives a level of comfort to their employees that there's a significant partner of well-capitalized resources that can help them kind of not only survive, but actually thrive in the storm. It gives clients of many of our companies comfort that if they're going to start selecting our software businesses, for example, for mission-critical processes, there's very little risk that our company's going to go out of business because it's not sufficient funding, the way in which maybe a smaller company that's burning a lot of cash otherwise might. And I think importantly, one of the things that we've seen over the last 10 years is that there are a lot of point solutions that are masquerading as companies and never should have been capitalized as such. And so it's a great opportunity right now for these entrepreneurs to help take advantage of some of those lesser well-capitalized point solutions and really distance themselves from the pack in terms of playing offense in this market. So that's, I'd say, writ large, a common theme across all the sectors. I'd say in areas such as consumer, what we're generally trying to stay away from are things that have a high discretionary spend to them, right? Because in a potential recessionary market, people will naturally focus on that, which is truly most important. And so you've got some extremes on the one hand. You, you, there's the super high end, where many times those consumers tend not to feel recessions the same way. And then people will naturally move towards maybe the lower end. And that's why you see companies like dollar stores doing very well right now. The ones in the middle is the more dangerous in zone. And so we're trying to be very careful about where and how we spend our time around the consumer. That said, there's so many trends that are almost recession proof insofar as that people date, like take Bumble. Dating is not a fad. And we've learned that people date in bull markets, they date in recessions, they date in quarantine, we've since learned, and they also date in real life. And so we like businesses like that, that have defensive characteristics that are largely insulated from cycles. Same thing with Spanx. I mean, shapewear is a core staple of so many women's wardrobe that that's also not something that's as subjective and discretionary. Sadly, skin cancer is not a fad. One in five people will develop skin cancer. And so our business, Supergoop, which is a daily SPF product, that coupled with this focus on aging, I'd say more gracefully, coupled with protecting against skin cancer is driven change in consumer behavior, where north of 80% of people who use Supergoop use it every single day. That's the type of characteristic we're looking for a consumer. And we're seeing a lot of opportunities in that market right now. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And coincidentally, I was, I was at a dinner last night and the person who I was having dinner with voluntarily talked about Bumble. No relation at all to you know our conversation, but out of the blue, talked about how his friend, and this is someone in their mid-40s, was on Bumble. And the first person that appears is someone who he actually knew wow. and had affinity for. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, that is pretty impressive technology. Are there any insights that you have about Bumble's technology? I think the more people you have on these platforms, the more apt you are to find a match that makes sense for you. You know, you're not drawing from a pool of 10 people. You know, 50%, 50% of people in America these days meet online for relationships. So this is not a fad and it's not going backwards. It's the same way that companies like Uber and Lyft and others, it's still a highly convenient way for you to find a car that works for you rather than standing in the rain getting a yellow taxi. It doesn't displace that exercise, but supplements it. Same exact thing in dating. You want to find someone that likes French literature, who likes to run in Central Park, you have a much better chance of finding that in a place like Bumble than you are randomly bumping into someone with those interests at a party. So I don't view it as a replacement for traditional dating, but what happens is the more that the platform has in terms of activity, 
the more apt you are to find a smarter match. And then we have been deploying some of our data resources down to Bumble, our data science resources, to really help them think through their algorithms, to think about pricing, and to make the experience a much more delightful one for its consumers. Now, it's been one and a half to two years since we last spoke on this podcast, and we'd love to hear about what's different. Obviously, there's the macro aspects we talked about earlier, but what's different? Maybe what are some of the key milestones that have been achieved or some key events for BXG? Sure. So I think at this point, we've got now, fortunately, numerous case studies. We've got 22 companies in our portfolio. And rather than a couple of years ago, when you and I chatted, we only had a few portfolio companies. And so I'm proud to say that fast forward, you look at 22 companies and there's very, very specific examples of where we actually have been able to prove out the model of functioning as a strategic in the skin of a growth equity firm. In terms of really bringing a level of operational infrastructure to an otherwise cottage industry that had never really had access to our type of resource. I'm really proud of having been able to work with so many great entrepreneurs like Sarah Blakely at Spanx or Whitney at Bumble or Amanda and Holly at, at Supergroup and really help them effectuate the growth that they aspire to. So that I think is very, very good. Well, no doubt we always make our share of mistakes. I feel good that a lot of what we said we would do, we end up doing in terms of our focus on a certain profile of company in a certain industry where we think that Blackstone brings an outsized advantage to help create value. So I feel good that we can point to many of those cases and we didn't lose our way and chase the shiny object that I think distracted some people in growth and venture. You know, for example, we have no investments in China. I speak Mandarin by background. I used to live in Beijing for a while. So I'm fully cognizant and in awe of the potential of what China has to bring, but I'm also mindful enough of some of the geopolitical risks, for example. And we chose to put more of our capital in places like North America and Europe. We didn't do anything in crypto. I don't have anything against crypto or blockchain, but I just didn't think that that was going to end up amounting to a good risk reward relative to other areas in which we put our capital in. So I think in our industry, RJ, you tend to get rewarded if you do what you say you do. You make mistakes, you get more forgiven when that happens. If you, As long as you're doing what you've told your partners and clients, that's what you're going to do, as opposed to looking at the industry like a Rorschach test and justifying anything in the name of growth equity and kind of disruption in large towns. So I feel very, very good about the discipline I think the organization has been able to operate against. Now, we alluded to the vast amount of resources Blackstone can bring to bear on the companies it decides to partner with. Can you talk a little bit about your team composition? I know there's a certain segment that's focused, you know, operationally, et cetera, but maybe your investment team, your operations team and others. Sure. So on our investment team, we've got about 40 people in New York, San Francisco, London, and Tel Aviv. And we put those people in those markets because we knew that regardless of cycle, we were going to find great opportunities to deploy capital and partner with entrepreneurs in those respective markets. That said, Blackstone's got 28 offices now, and there's no competing pool of capital whatsoever inside Blackstone for the types of companies that BXG tends to partner with. And so we have the option, but not the obligation to invest in each of those other respective markets. I think that's very, very important because if you're going to be global in your focus in growth equity, it's very, very helpful to have other products subsidize the existence of those offices elsewhere. Because otherwise, if you have an office in, I don't know, pick a random country, pick Thailand. If you have an office in Thailand, if you don't invest in Thailand, you end up losing your local teams. And so sometimes that leads to more structural diversification than you should otherwise want across cycles. So we purposely put people in sector specialists in those four major markets I pointed to. They come from, I'd say, a traditional growth equity background, similar to me, but they speak Blackstone fluently, right? So we think about fulcrum securities or change of control tax assets. 
but we're equally comfortable talking to an entrepreneur in a hoodie about their business because you're kind of consistent with Blackstone, but authentic to growth. And I think that was another important consideration. We're very, very well balanced by headcount across our major offices. So it's not as if all of our sector heads are in New York. In fact, the majority of our sector heads are not in our New York headquarters. And we think that was an important decision to create some ballast to the perceived gravity of headquarters and therefore empower other markets in outsized ways that maybe you wouldn't otherwise suspect of a business that's headquartered in New York. Um, and then the broader infrastructure of the firm, we've got thousands of employees and the operations team, we have dozens of data scientists. We've got over a billion square feet of e-commerce logistics warehouses. We buy centrally on behalf of north of 700,000 people. And that allows us to be one of the very largest clients globally of AWS or FedEx or others. And that can translate the savings of 15, 20, or 25% of huge swaths of your SGNA relative to a growth company's kind of base cost. We've got 100 plus operating professionals. We've got data scientists. We have brand marketers. Spanx, for example, we're working with them on their social media customer acquisition, pricing specialists, go to market experts. We have cross-selling teams. You know, Blackstone's got $200 plus billion of revenue in our Blackstone ecosystem, and we can facilitate introductions across that. And so those are all, I'd say, not meant to be a replacement of management's resources. Instead, they're meant to be an extension of management's bandwidth so they can take on much more transformational growth without the execution risk you'd associate with really fast-growing environments. Mm -hmm. Well, we're coming up on time, and I just have two last questions, quick and easy. One is, can you tell us about a book that you've read that has had an impact on you? Oh, God, there's so many. I like to read. I've been trying to push myself to get back into fiction. I used to read a lot of nonfiction. I really enjoy fiction. I get lost. Even simple novels. It can be a John Grisham novel. But one of the things I've always turned to is a speech. Uh, maybe give me some liberty here. It's a speech not rather than a book, but it's The Man in the Arena or some refer to as Daring Greatly by Teddy Roosevelt. And anytime throughout my life, I've had big decisions to make, including even, by the way, joining Blackstone. I have a copy of it in my desk, and I look to it just to remind myself that for those who haven't read the speech, I encourage you to do so. It's very short. But it says it's not the critic who counts. You know, It's the man who's in the arena, whose face is marred with blood and sweat, and that if they fail, they at least fail daring greatly. And to me, that's a really important, inspirational piece of work throughout my whole life I've always turned to. And I encourage my children to do it, to take a chance. And it's okay to fail and to put yourself out of your comfort zone in doing so. Because as the final sentence in that speech suggests, it's not the timid souls that will be remembered. It's really those who at least kind of were in the arena who had a chance to do it. So that was probably one I've read most recently as I've had to make some important decisions. Fantastic. Okay, last question. Can you tell us about a person that you've either met or have come to learn about in the last two years that has really had an impact on you and that you particularly admire? I'll give you an answer that sounded trite, but it really is meaningful with my father, my mom. I mean, they've had such a profound impact on me. You know, I've had the, the luxury of meeting as a core part of my daily job, just fabulous entrepreneurs kind of truly changing the world. And every now and then you come away and you're like, oh my goodness, like that person is really just in so inspirational in what they're doing. And I think as part of that, it's tough to choose among partners that you meet, but even in our own portfolio, like there's not a day that goes by where I'm not like, that is unbelievable. That person is just so inspirational. I'd say it's on a nonprofit. Yeah, so there's plenty I can point to on the business side, but on the nonprofit, there's a group called Project Rousseau, and it's led by a guy named Andrew Heinrich. And he is one of the most inspirational, 
dedicated social entrepreneurs I've ever met. He was summa cum laude at Yale. He was a professor there. I mean, the, his resume is unbelievable. And yet you talk to him about the things he's doing for refugees, for example. He's doing fabulous work for the Ukrainian refugees. He's working with First Nation reservations and helping with alcoholism and suicide. He's helping with people in the inner city, Harlem, to equip them with access to educational opportunities and peer mentorship. And the thing that's so inspirational when we talk to Andrew is, one, his humility. I mean, his scope of impact and the surface area of that impact is so much greater than the resources that he has available to him. But for example, he doesn't take a salary, right? It's not because he's in a position to not do that. But I was joking around, I said, you're entitled to take some salary. And his answer to me was, in most worlds, you're entitled to take a salary. He's like, when I take a salary, I think about how many other people could I have now helped and saved and improved. It really reminds me, not, I hate to draw the analogy, but like Schindler's List, I tear up every time I watch that, where he looks at his ring and he says, like, I could have saved more lives with this ring. And you know, in some small way, I mean, you see that with what Andrew's doing on a day-to-day basis, and he's found other ways to supplement his income outside of Project Rousseau. That's probably the most inspirational person I've met in the last five years. I forget two years. I mean, it's amazing. And so for those of you, and I'm not on the board, I'm not actively involved in the business. It's one where I'd encourage you to look into this. It's Project Rousseau, and I think Andrew's great. Well, what a great way to end this conversation. Truly inspiring. Well, John, I want to thank you again for taking the time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.